are now listening to PursuitCast, the official podcast of Pursuit NYC. May it be an encouragement to you today and stir your soul for revival. First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Let's pray, and we'll jump into the message tonight. Father, I thank you for what you have in store this evening. Your presence is already here. So Lord, give us good, fertile ground to receive your word that will produce within us a 30 times, a 60 times, a hundredfold return for your word. God, I thank you that the power isn't in the preaching, it's not in the preacher, it's in your word. So God, let your word go deep into our hearts tonight. God, I ask for your anointing, and I ask for the fear of the Lord to deliver this word for this hour, for this region. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, just like Danny said, uh, you know, we believe revival is coming like it's coming, amen. And I was trying to think of like something clever to say. I'm like, nah, it's just coming, you know? Like, there was a point where we were confident, we had faith, we were believing for revival. But I believe right now, I could say personally that I know that revival is coming. Like, like I just know it's coming. It, it's beyond but just believing that it would come. But I know that it's coming. So just like Danny said, it's no longer about us just contending for revival. Now, I believe we'll always contend, amen? But it's shifting to preparing. Contending is part of the preparation, but it's about how do we then prepare for what God is about to do? What's the shift that needs to take place? And it's that word preparation, right? Preparation. I'm not a father. I'm not even a husband yet. Any intercessors here that want to pray for me, right? right? I'm not a father. I'm not even a husband, but... I'm at an age where a lot of my friends are getting married. They are having children. A lot of them are becoming first-time parents. And and when you are about to be overwhelmed, when you know you're about to be in over your head, what do you do if you've never had any experience? You start preparing. Preparation is the separation. It's what prepares you and separates you for what's about to come. So they get ready. They plan. they, They try to pick a baby name. They pick, you know, what color for the nursery. They read books, you know, what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah, I went on Amazon, right? You know, how do I sleep train my baby? If you really don't know anything, you find what is a baby, you know? Right? Because you're in the process of preparing. So 
So in the same vein, as we're talking about revival, contending for revival, believing for revival, and now we're preparing for revival, the question that we as a team and, and I myself have been asking ourselves is, what then is revival? What exactly is revival? You know, is it something like the wind where you can't see it, but you know it when it comes? Right? Like, what exactly is revival? And when I ask that question already, personally, I find myself in attention because I, I want to figure it out. I want to know the answer. I want to explain it to other people. But yet at the same time, I don't want to put it in a box. Right? I don't want to put revival in a box because what usually ends up happening is that revival is always disruptive. I love what's happening with, you know, Prophet Kanye West. Amen? Amen. Right? Anyone love what's happening through Kanye West? You know, just this past week, he was doing his, you know, choir, his Sunday service in a jail. And people, you know, religious people are like, oh my gosh, what's he doing there? Is this a publicity stunt? And other people are like, oh my gosh, that's like Jesus. But tomorrow, did you know that Kanye West is doing his Sunday service at Lakewood Church, right, which is Joel Osteen's church? And that's when other people are now offended. He's like, oh, he's a con artist. Joel Osteen's smile is too fake, right? I, I'm not saying that. I, I love Lakewood. I love Joel Osteen. But I love it because he's going from two radically different things, a prison to a mega church. Who knows where he's coming next? Maybe resting place. Maybe prophesy that, right? But... I love it because what is it doing? It's disruptive. Like we can't put it in a box. And I feel like that's what revival has always been. So I'm trying to figure it out. Like I, I'm just inviting everyone tonight into my own process of thinking. You know, so is this a sermon? Is this a message? Is, is this me having a counseling session in front of in the public? Maybe, right? Maybe it's all of those things. But I'm in that place of trying to figure it out. And with that, another tension I face is I don't want to paint the picture of revival so clearly and have my own preconceived notions because that's how you oftentimes miss what God is about to do. For every past move of God, usually what happens is the people on the front lines of the last move of God are rarely involved in the new move of God because they put God in a box. So think about this. The Pharisees, the experts of the law, Check this out. They didn't just memorize Bible verses. They didn't just memorize chapters of the Bible. They memorized the entire Old Testament. Think about that for a moment. They memorized the entire Old Testament. You know, thank God for the Bible app. I'm like searching by peace and then, you know, trying to find it. But they memorized the entire Old Testament. If anyone knew the word of God, it was them. But yet, when the word of God was made flesh and it was right before them, they missed it because they had their preconceived notions of what the Messiah was supposed to look like. So that's the tension. You know, I find myself as I want to figure it out. I want to define it. But yet, I don't want to define it too much. And I'm just kind of in this crisis moment, honestly. And I'm trying to figure out and understand what revival is. There's a tension of discovering what revival is and having revival discover you. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, in 1994, how many guys know Toronto? All right, not just the city, but I'm in a room full of Pentecostals and Charismatics and flag wavers and tongue speakers. So when I say Toronto, y'all know what I'm talking about. The Toronto outpouring, the Toronto blessing, when revival hit, 
Did you know that revival took place on a random midweek service with this guy that no one has ever heard of named Randy Clark? He just showed up and God showed up too. And all of us, sudden, thousands of people came and, and, and there's an outpouring of the Spirit. But check this out. A lot of people thought it wasn't a real revival because people were laughing. People were falling over. People were weeping for hours. And they're like, we've never seen this before. This isn't a revival. But check this out. They didn't go into that random midweek service thinking, all right, in the next few months, we're going to have people laugh. We're going to have people speak in tongues. We're going to have people fall on the ground. And we're going to have people think it's a fake revival. They had no idea what God was about to do. So it's not them discovering revival, but revival discovering them. And that's just the process, right? So as I've looked through revival and everything like that, there are similarities that show up in every move of God. But there's prayer, there's repentance, uh, there's a recovery of a lost truth, there's just the overall sovereign move of God that just no man or ministry or anything can take credit for. But here's the thing, the ingredients have been the same, but the outcome has always been different. Right? The outcome has always been different. So for example, who here likes eggs? Right? Eggs are my favorite food because I think it's so versatile. So let's say God gives you eggs. You're like, oh my gosh, I can make this scrambled. I could have sunny side up. I can make an omelet. And the next thing he gives you is butter. You're like, oh, upgrade, anointing, oil, right? Whatever it is. And let's say the next ingredient he gives you is sugar. You're like, Jesus, what am I supposed to do with sugar on eggs? That's gross, right? But what if it's because he's preparing you to bake a cake? Does that make sense? He gives you ingredients that you think it's going to look... Someone loves cake, I think, right? I'm not sure what the come on was for, but... Right? But sometimes you think God is setting you up one way, and he gives you something that doesn't look like anything, because once again, the ingredients might look similar, but the outcome is different. So another example of that I could give is, in the 1800s, there was a Fulton Street Revival. How many of you have heard of that before? Jeremiah Lamphere, he's this crazy United Methodist pastor who starts a prayer meeting. Eventually, at its height, every day from noon to 1 p.m., thousands and thousands of businessmen get together and pray in New York City. And that sparked revival. But here's the thing. We could read a story like that, and we could think to ourselves, man, so that's what we must do. We have to start a noonday prayer meeting with all the people in business, then revival will come. It might come, but how many of you know it's not about us just doing what they used to do, right? Do it if God tells you to do it, but don't do it because you think if I just follow these steps, it'll bring revival. Because once again, ingredients might be similar, but the outcome God is after will always be different. So these are some of the thoughts that I've been thinking and processing about revival. What is revival? And with that question last month, Danny here and I, we went all the way to uh, Southern California. We went to Los Angeles to eat, but also because we felt like God wanted us to go. And to be honest, that, that truly was it. We, we didn't know what the agenda was. We didn't have any ministry, op, you know, um, opportunities. I don't even know if that's the word I'm looking for. But we just went in faith because we felt like God was wanting us to go and just absorb whatever he wanted to when it comes to revival. Like all the great awakenings happened in the Northeast, but a lot of the revivals of, of more recently happened in the West Coast for some reason, right? I don't know why. 
But we went there and we're just, you know, literally on a prophetic treasure hunt. That's what it felt like. And while we're on the plane there, you know, I, I'm just reading different books and everything like that. I, I came across the fact that Billy Graham's first ever crusade that put him on the map actually happened in Los Angeles. And I never knew that before. And what's crazy is the weekend we were going was literally in the middle of his 70th anniversary of that revival. We're like, all right, there's something here. So we end up going to the memorial that Los Angeles put up for Billy Graham to commemorate where that revival took place. I mean, think about that just for a moment. A city is honoring an evangelist. Isn't that wild? That the city of Los Angeles has a memorial to Billy Graham to say this was a real man of God, that he loved every single person, and we're commemorating what God did through him you know, on this date 70 years ago. Right? That revival reached 350,000 people. It went on for eight weeks. And, and one of the craziest statistics about that revival that blew me away was that they had a 1,000 churches rally and pray for that single event. I'm like, how do you do that without Instagram? You know, like, how do you do that without creating a Facebook event? It was just a move of God. So we go there, and God is speaking to us. We went to uh, Anaheim Vineyard, which was, you know, kind of the birthplace of signs and wonders today. Uh, you know, everything that we know of modern worship could be traced to the vineyard in a lot of ways. So we go there. God is speaking to us. Uh, we go to Newport Beach, where uh, Danny was praying earlier about the Jesus People Movement. And that's where... Uh, they baptized thousands and thousands of hippies, right? The people who are caught up in, in drugs and sex and all these different things, they were radically getting saved in the 60s and 70s, and they were all getting baptized in this random beach in Southern California. We go there, and we're praying, God, do it again, and all these different things. And, and we go to Bonnie Bray House, which is where tongues first exploded in 1904. Then we go to Azusa Street, where the revival and the birthplace. And so we're just literally going everywhere saying, God, do it again. Teach us. Show us. I mean, but we're just going because we want to see what God did. We're just trying to understand. We're just trying to learn. We just want to know what revival has looked like. So as I've gone to these places and, and looked at the similarities, I found another similarity. And it's a more sobering one. And it's the fact that all of these great revivals have ended. And not only that, oftentimes the people who were on the front lines of it, the men and women of God that God used most mightily and powerfully as the spear, the tip of the spear of that move of God, it doesn't always end well for that man or that woman. And yet that was part of it. It's that the revival didn't last. So as I studied more about what is revival and looked at these different things, I found a scary truth. And it's the fact that you could have the fire of revival without first love devotion. You could literally be the anointed man of God or woman of God of the hour and yet still do it out of love of ministry rather than your love of Jesus. And that just literally woke me up. It was so sobering because, you know, one of my frustrations is this, is that the anointing of God and character of man don't always go hand in hand. Like, I, I wish there was an equation for the anointing. Anyone else feel that way? Like, hours prayed times chapters of Bible read equals the anointing. Right, but it resets every week, so you all get a fresh start, you know? 
Right? Like, I wish there was an occasion. Like, if you multiply, add in fasting, you know, it's exponential, you know? But for some reason, it doesn't work like that at all. The anointing on a person's life isn't God's approval of that person's lifestyle. And that made me just tremble with the fear of the Lord. It made me really want to understand what's it going to take? Because yes, anointing brings a revival, but lack of character will kill it. And that was the sobering similarity along with prayer, repentance, you know, discovery of God, whatever it might be. And if I'm honest, I know I do this myself where a lot of times I romanticize the move of God. And, and hear me, I honor every single revival that, that this planet has ever experienced. Amen? Like, I honor those leaders. I honor these men and women of God. I honor every single one of them. I want God to do it again. I want to redig the wells of revival, but I don't want to repeat history in the process. I want God to do it again, but not at the cost of my own soul, because we see that literally take place all the time. I know of stories of people who have literally raised the dead. There are people who have literally raised the dead. What that means is this person was dead, right? <laughs> they brought it to the, 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 the leader, the leader, and they literally came to life. So that person was a literal revivalist. I'm like a pseudo-revivalist, right? Because I've never raised someone from the dead, but I'm believing for a revivalist. So I'm a pseudo-revivalist. But these literal revivalists who have raised multiple people from the dead have also murdered their own marriage. Right? I mean, that's the reality of what's out there. You could do these things, and yet God can use you... And once again, it's frustrating. It's frustrating to me because I, I don't know if I'm as anointed as those people. And I'm just kind of in this place of what do we do then? So even the Jesus people movement, one of my heroes who was at the front lines of it, he was on Time Magazine, all these different things. He confesses and admits in his own book that on Saturdays he would sleep with men. But on Sundays, the Holy Spirit would come and people will fall out. Like, like, once again, I'm frustrated. I'm confused. I don't understand. But once again, every revival that has started because of the anointing has ended because of lack of character. And I'm not saying this to bash these people or anything like that, but so that we can learn from their stories. So I've read stories, once again, of people doing all these different things, living in compromise. And I know as people, I know I'm not the only one in this room who has prayed prayers like, God, bring revival. God, use me. I'll pay any price. Friends, not at the price of our families. Not at the price of our integrity. Not at the price of our innocence. In preparation for this message, I've just been reading Corinthians and studying. And check out this verse. It's, man, it, it was scary when I read it, to be honest. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says this. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Don't oftentimes we repent so that we could feel 
a clear conscience. It's like, man, I just don't want to carry this guilt anymore. So I'll repent. I'll do this. I'll, I'll do whatever. So I could have a clear conscience. But friends, a clear conscience does not mean you're innocent. And when I read things like that, it makes me wake up to the reality of what it's really going to cost for revival. What it's really going to cost for revival. So as I've been looking at these different revivals, even when I was in California and just coming across random books that talk about different moves of God and everything like that, there was another revival where God moved powerfully. Thousands and thousands of people get saved. But years later, it comes to an end. The team that brought it split up because of you know, jealousy, greed, money, whatever, differences, whatever it might be. And I started asking myself this thing. Because the thing that's been burning on my heart ever since I became a believer was for revival. But once again, I pray, God, use me for revival. I'll pay any price. Let's say God does use me to bring revival. But I, you know, live a compromised life. Or let's say, you know, God, you know, uses pursuit to bring revival. But let's say years later, you know, whatever happens and we go our separate ways. And I started saying this to myself. If that was the case... If my name was in those history books of bringing revival, turning a city upside down, but if I didn't finish well, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. That's just me being honest. Like, I wouldn't be able to live. I'll get everything I ever prayed for. Or you ever read some crazy stuff in the Bible where Peter's shadow is healing the sick? You know, I'm going to the beach like, Standing in front of everybody. Like, why are you standing in my side? You're about to get healed. That's why, right? Like, God will answer all these things. But yet, if I live a compromised life and it ends in failure, I wouldn't be able to live with myself. But here's the thing that I've noticed, right? especially today, a lot of different scandals happening, is that I don't want to get to the place of, of repentance because I got caught. Right, because I got caught recently, a, a famous Christian, I'm not going to say these people's names, but they were exposed of, of, of sexual whatever, and that's when they shut down everything. I don't want to get to the place of, y'all, everything's good, God is growing my ministry, and then all of a sudden I'm caught, I'm like, oh, I'm repenting now. Like, I want to get right before the Lord before I ruin everything in the process. Right, gifts are blinding. The anointing is intoxicating. The platform is alluring. But only character is sustaining. So as I've been asking these questions of what is revival, I found myself then asking hard questions to myself. And I said, everything is on the table, Lord. Everything's on the table. And like I said, I'm, I'm kind of in a weird place, you know. I feel like I'm in a place of reset. Sometimes I feel like I'm having a midlife crisis, and then I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm having a quarter-life crisis, you know. I'm too young <laughs> and everything like that. And, and, you know, like I'm just in a weird place. So one moment I'm like, God, like, do you even answer prayer? Does prayer even make a difference? And then literally moments later I'm like, God, even if you never answer prayer, you've been good to me. Like I'm like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Right? Anyone else feel that way, just honestly? Like, right? like you're kind of in, in a place, a, a mixed bag of emotions. 
And I, as I was just processing these things, I found this phrase that God spoke to me, and I want to release it because I know I'm not the only one on the verge of a breakdown, a.k.a. on the verge of a breakthrough, amen? Is that I'm in crisis, but I'm on the verge of a breakthrough. Right, if you've been in that place, I want to release that word to you. I, yeah, I'm in crisis, but it's because I'm on the verge of breakthrough. So I'm asking God, what is revival? And I start asking myself other questions. And one of the questions I've recently asked myself is this. If I wasn't in ministry and there weren't eyes on me as a pastor or leader or minister or whatever, would I love Jesus the same? Like if I didn't lead Pursuit NYC and people didn't know me as a pastor, would I love Jesus the same? And would I go after him in the same way? And if my answer is no, maybe I shouldn't be in ministry. I literally thought these things. I'm like, all right, how am I going to tell my team I'm about to resign? You know? Like, maybe I don't deserve to be in ministry. Maybe I need to learn how to love God just in a regular nine-to-five job without any eyes on me or any expectations or whatever. And then only then, maybe I deserve to ever preach again. Like, I'm just asking myself these things. I'm like, God, what is my purpose? What is my vision? Why am I even alive? Once again, a quarter-life crisis, you know? And all of that because I simply asked, God, what is revival? He said, oh, you want to know revival? And like all this stuff like starts like releasing in me. I'm like, what's happening? You know, why am I doing all that I'm doing? Am I in process? Am I, am I being faithful in the process for a promise, for a blessing, or because I'm in love with Jesus? Because I know that in, in environments like this, I'm a product of, of environments like this where I'm all about breakthrough, you know, 2020, like looking up the Hebrew number, like whatever, right? Like this is my year of breakthrough, but so was last year and three years ago, right? <laughs> But yet, once again, I have to remind myself, is this about what I'm getting or is this really about Jesus? And because I love him. Like, what is this all about? What have I made this to be if it's not about being radically in love with the one who first loved me? Because think about it, right? Matthew chapter 7, I think all of us know it. Where Jesus says in the end times, people would come to him saying, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We casted out demons in your name. We did all these different things. And Jesus will simply say, I never knew you. But let's think about this for a moment. Jesus isn't saying that to the cessationists. Because they don't believe in that stuff. Are you with me? Right? He's not saying that to the comfortable Christians who just do their Sunday thing. Because they're not the ones casting out demons. But let's be real. Have you ever seen a backslidden Christian cast out a demon? No, they need the demon casted out of them. Amen, right? Right? He's not saying that to the people out in the world that because they're the ones that are broken. He's saying that to people like you and I who are about revival. That's who he's saying that to. I want to get to a place when I read verses like that, I'm like, oh, this is for him, her, oh, it's definitely for that ministry. I need to start reading it like, yo, that could be me. Like that could really be me. Now, I'm not saying we live in constant fear because I think that's unhealthy. But, but let's, let's start here, right? 
The word, first of all, is a mirror for the reader. It's not a finger for me to point, but it's a mirror to say, yo, is this true of me? Could this possibly be of me? So why does Jesus say, I never knew you? Once again, I've been studying 1 Corinthians for y'all. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3 simply says this, whoever loves God is known by God. Why does Jesus say, I never knew you? Because he only knows people who actually love him. Like I said in the beginning of this message, you can cast out demons. You can heal the sick. You can even raise the dead. And it would have nothing to do with your current relationship with Jesus. If that doesn't sober us up, I don't know what will. Right? Whoever loves God is known by God. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Why is it so important for us to love God and have him know us? Psalm 139, verse 23 to 24. Search me and know me. Test me and see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you never allow yourself to be known by God, you will have all these blind spots that will ultimately take you out. It's about loving God and having him know you. So back to the passage we read. I want to read it again. Because this whole part of scripture is is not only an exhortation, but it's also a warning. So do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one get the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the price. Here, I want to keep reading chapter 10. Because this is the real reason why he's saying all these things. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. But check this out. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Say what? Right? Let's keep reading. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Let me pause here for a moment. How many of you have ever prayed things like, God, if you would just show me this miracle, then I'll believe. Have you prayed that before? God, if you would just give me this parking spot, I'll exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, right? When we pray these things, God, if you would just show me with my, and I can see it with my own eyes, then I'll really believe. Then I'll really, the Bible tells us, no, you won't. No, you won't, because the Israelites saw everything. But yet they still missed it. So let me keep reading. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, how do you miss it? The Bible tells us. But once again, verse 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So here it is, verse 7, do not be idolaters. 
as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Some of you here like, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm not an idolater. So let's keep reading. <laughs> it says, we should not commit sexual immorality. And others are like, yo, here's my purity ring. I'm good, all right? Let's keep reading, though, right? As some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ. That's like, oh my gosh, I think I tested him this last week. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Right? Think about this. Testing Christ got you killed by snakes. This is where it gets crazier, though. This is where all of us fail. Check this out. And do not grumble. Oh my. What? Do not grumble? As some of them did. If you tested Christ, check this out. You got killed by snakes. You know what happens to you if you grumbled? And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Yo, the Bible's crazy. Do not be idolaters. Do not commit sexual immorality. Do not test Christ. Do not even grumble as they did. What does that mean? It's not that they had, you know, they were messed up or anything like that. It's that they had an attitude towards God that wasn't reverent at the end of the day. Are you hearing me? So verse 11, why does Paul write all these crazy things? He says that these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. He's writing this for our sake. But he's writing this as a warning for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. I think that phrase is so important. What's Paul saying? It's that these things are warnings for us because you and I who are living today in 2019, we're living in the culmination of the age. In other words, this is the fullness of time. We're about to see the greatest revival ever. Amen? We're about to see Jesus get ready to come back. And if we don't heed the word of God today, we're going to miss it. Because this is the most important generation that God is preparing us for. But the Bible says that, you know, we're running in a race that there's people, there's a cloud of witnesses. They pass the baton to us. You know what people do after they pass the baton? They don't go like, hey, we don't care what happens, you know, now we did offer. They're cheering for us because we're running that last leg of the race. Revival is about to come, and we have to understand why. It's so important, because this is the fullness of time. This is the culmination of the age. We're the ones that are going to see the greatest revival ever. And now it gets encouraging, right? So Paul says all of that. There's a lot of pressure now. And he says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, you'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Amen. That's not just about purity for teenagers. That's so that we can run this race to the end. When you're tempted to be caught up in idolatrous things, sexual immorality, grumbling, testing God, yo, he'll help you in the way because that's a good God. Think about it. This isn't warning like you got to get it right, but it's, yo, so that you can get it right. I'm going to help you get it right, but you have to read and understand my word. 
So once again, this is so important because as I've been saying all that, you can preach and you can even bring revival and still up, end up disqualifying yourself. That's what Paul says, run in such a way where you're not disqualified. There's a difference between being unqualified and being disqualified. There's a difference between being unqualified and disqualified. Every single one of us in this room are unqualified. Can I even say this? God only uses unqualified people. What qualifies you to be even be used by God is the fact that you've always been unqualified. Those are the only types of people he used. So check this out. Every single one of Jesus' first disciples were unqualified when they were called. Every single one of them, Peter, John, you know, some random ones like Bartholomew, like where did he come from? We never hear about him again, you know? Like every single one of them were unqualified, and yet every single one of them healed the sick. Every single one of them raised the dead. They fed the multitude. They were used mightily of God. Every single one of them were unqualified, but only one was disqualified. There's a difference between being unqualified and disqualified. Now, when it comes to that word being disqualified, I don't want us to think it's eternal damnation. Amen? Right? I don't want us to think that. Once again, I've been studying Corinthians for y'all. <laughs> and the answer to what I think that looks like of being disqualified is actually in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12 to 14. That gives a better picture of what it is. It says this. You know, it talks about how Jesus is the cornerstone, he's the chief stone, he's the foundation, and upon him we build everything. Verse 12 says, if anyone builds on this foundation, which is Jesus Christ, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Right? Not eternal damnation. Even though, but check this out, even though only as one escaping through the flames. The part of being disqualified is that when you disqualify everything you built up and were building for, a ministry name, you know, revival, you lose your credibility. I mean, let's think about this even practically. If someone who's a great man of God has an amazing ministry, they're caught in immorality, their credibility is gone like this. Everything that they built for, everything that they had blood, uh, sweat, and tears for are gone in a moment. They're disqualified because what they built was actually of straw and whatever. But yet they're still saved, but they're barely saved. The Bible says that they just they just escaped the fire. They barely escaped the fire. I don't know about you, but I don't want to end that way. I don't want to be disqualified in the end. So back to the passage. What does Paul do then so he doesn't disqualify himself? He says, train, prepare, have self-discipline. Don't run aimlessly. Run with purpose. Don't beat the air randomly, but train in all these different things. Can I have the worship team... Uh, Come up. Now we're about to close this thing. So what, how does he do it? The answer is found in verse 27. And this is what he says. 
And I'll start from verse 26. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Like, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to beat your body? What does it mean to make my body a slave? First things first, what Paul is talking about here isn't about asceticism. Not aesthetics like Instagram, like ah, aesthetics, but asceticism, which is basically the denial of everything. So I was researching, I googled asceticism, because I didn't know what the word was too, right? And the first picture you find is of a Buddha praying. How many guys know the fat Buddha, right? You better not say I'm looking at one, all right, right? Just making sure y'all are awake. If you laugh, you messed up, all right? How many guys know the fat Buddha? But did you know there's a starving, skinny Buddha who has his like ribs sticking out? That's asceticism. That's basically saying my path to holiness or whatever is just denial of all things. That's not what Paul is talking about. And he's, he's not talking about self-flagellation, which is what you know, some of the people in the Catholic Church would do. If they had you know, sexual temptation, they would literally beat them their own body because they took this literally. That's not what Paul is talking about. What is he talking about? He's, what he means is this, that he makes his body serve his purpose and he doesn't serve his body's needs instead. What do I mean by that? Let's say you feel like God is putting it on your heart to seek Him early in the morning. If you're like me, your body wants to sleep in. That means you're serving your body instead of saying, no, I will wake up and having your body serve your purpose. Does that make sense? That's what He means. The other part is this, that it's about enduring hardships for the sake of the gospel. Because earlier Paul is, you know, talks about throughout even the whole New Testament. You know, I've been beaten more than any other apostle. I've been shipwrecked. I did this. I did that. And he's saying, I'm willing to endure hardships for the gospel. I think we need to hear that in the church today. Because we leave the gospel when we're offended. Right? Let's just be real. We leave when I don't agree with the pastor. We leave when we think, you know, I no longer get fed at church. But Paul is saying, I endure hardships, like legit hardships, for the sake of the gospel. Now, this is hard, amen? This is difficult. Carrying the cross is no joke. Dying daily is difficult. In today's culture, did you know that more people are persecuted and martyred for Jesus Christ than ever before in human history? It's just not on the news. But think about even today's culture where everything is so polarizing. Persecution by culture and all these different things. Suffering is hard, but let's be real. Throughout history, the greatest threat to the church was never difficulty. It was never persecution. It was never suffering. It was comfort and compromise. The greatest threat to the church isn't what you face, but the compromises you have. It's that we've embraced comfort more than anything, throughout history, that's been the threat to the church. I don't know why, but there's something about when the church is prosperous that the church's soul becomes impoverished. I don't know why, but that's just kind of how it is. Read it in the book of Acts where God, Jesus says, go into all the nations. And they're just living their life. They have, you know, Pentecost happen. God is, the ministry is growing. They're all excited. And Jesus is like, yo, I told you to go. Y'all having a party. 
I told you to go. I'm not against partying. We should party. Amen, right? But they're not obeying the word. So what does Jesus do? He sends persecution. He sends suffering. And that causes him to go. And then yet they have another Pentecost-type baptism of the Spirit. Right? The famous saying is this, that the blood of martyrs has been the seed to revival. And yet in today where everything is easy, everything is easy. Like I said, if I want a Bible verse, all I got to do is Google it. I don't have to know it in my own actual Bible. The greatest threat to the church has been comfort and compromise, not persecution or suffering. And I think that understanding is preparation for the revival to come. Because let's think about this for a moment. The greatest test you'll ever face from the Lord are actually His blessings. It's actually the increase. Do you know why sowing is so hard? Do you know why waiting is so hard? Because the harvest is going to be harder. That's when your back is breaking from the labor. Sowing is hard because harvesting is going to be crazy. I've been to a resting place before on Monday nights, and it's a parking disaster. Right? Let God remedy it in Jesus' name. But you'll check this out. Let's say 3,000 people get saved, like in the book of Acts. And they hear that, yo, if you want Jesus, you could come to a resting place. How many know that's a blessing, but that's a logistical nightmare? Let's just be practical. Right, 3,000 people, that's awesome. How are they going to get in the room? Right, Because the greatest test you'll face is actually the blessing of God. The real test isn't lack, it's abundance. You're not going to be judged for what you did with lack. He's going to judge you with how you stewarded the abundance. The real test isn't obscurity, but influence. What did you do with the influence God gave you? If no one knows my name, I'm good. There's no pressure. There's no eyeballs on me. I could post something silly on my Instagram, and I won't, people call, I won't have people call me a false prophet, you know? Because no one follows me. If you want to follow me, add Sam Juan, okay? Amen. All right? The real test isn't waiting for the promise, but the promise itself. Even for Abraham, the real test wasn't waiting for Isaac. It was laying Isaac at the altar after he got the promise. You know, waiting a hundred years is hard. But imagine having to deal with stewarding that promise. You know, this is the descendant of all, the father of all the nations. Right? It's the promise that's the real test. So like I said, revival is coming. Amen? The greatest revival the world has ever known is coming. Amen? But yet that revival, the greatest revival, is also going to be the greatest test the church has ever faced. What are you going to do when people like Kanye West get saved? How is the church going to steward that? How is the church going to steward influence like never before? How are we going to do that? I think it's amazing that we prayed for unity. What if revival comes and we kill it because of, of our own bitterness to one another? What if revival comes and because it didn't happen through my ministry, yo, I end up killing it? 
The greatest test that's about to come is the greatest revival the church has ever known. So I, I believe that's why it's God's mercy that's actually holding it back. He's reserving it. I know it's coming. I know without a shadow of a doubt it's coming. But I believe God is holding it, reserving it out of his kindness and mercy so we don't get destroyed by the weight of his blessing. So once again, I've been praying for revival, but as I've been asking these questions, let's, I'm going to be honest, like, am I about this life for real? Like, am I really about revival? Because I want the glory of revival. I want the platform of revival. But can I handle the weight of revival? And if I'm on, I have the fear of the Lord. God, I want this, but I don't want to destroy myself in the process and also destroy people who are looking to me for leadership in the process. You know, I have the fear of the Lord when it comes to this thing. Because I realize it's not just hyper after, man. We want the real thing, amen? I believe you're here today because you want the real thing. And as I look to the real thing, I'm like, yo, I need to get ready myself. Not with strategies, not with plans, not with the budget, not with the building, not with the social media, whatever. I need my own heart and soul, my own spirit to be right before the Lord. Before we have the fire of God that revives, we must have the fire of God that refines. Refining must precede the reviving, or else what God brings back to life will only have to bury it again. But I believe what God is about to do, He wants it to last for generation to generation. Amen? Amen. I believe the revival that God is wanting is the revival that sets up Jesus is coming back. Jesus isn't coming back because the church failed. He's not coming back because the gospel wasn't powerful. He's coming back because the gospel was preached to the ends of the earth. Because there is revival. I believe that's what God is setting us up for, is revival that has no end. And it culminates with Jesus saying, Yo, it's ready for me to come back now. I don't want a revival that's amazing for five years, even a decade, even my lifetime, if it somehow ends. Because check this out. The greatest king in the Bible outside of Jesus is King David. Amen? He's amazing. He changes the nation of Israel. But even for him, check this out. It doesn't last beyond Solomon. It doesn't even go beyond one generation. Even Solomon's ending is a little iffy, right? Right. And I think God wants to prepare us then that we don't ruin it. And not just ruin revival, but y'all ruin ourselves in the process. So I believe tonight God wants to do a deep refining work in our own hearts and soul. Amen. I, re I really was praying and believing tonight that God was going to bring people who are for real about revival. Because this is, you know, I'd rather preach like, you know, excitement. Like, yo, we all going to heaven or something, you know. Not like, 
Yo, even if your conscience is clear, you're not innocent. That's a hard word to preach. But I believe you're here because you're the ones that would hear that and say, yes, Lord. My conscience might be clear, but I want to be innocent before your eyes. I want you to do whatever you need to do. I need you to refine me for real. So when revival comes, I'm prepared for it. I'm prepared for it. We need the fire of God that refines before the fire of God that revives. So Holy Spirit, I ask you tonight that you would search us and know us. That you would do whatever you want to do, whatever you need to do. Prepare us, God. We're not after strategy. We're not after logistics, God. We're after our hearts and souls being right before you. Holy Spirit, search us. Know us tonight. Do whatever you need to do in us. Come, Holy Spirit. Come on, if God is speaking to you tonight, I want to invite you to just come all the way up to the altar tonight. And let's just create a holy space, an altar before the Lord where we say, God, have your fire that refines, that purifies fall on me tonight. And here's the thing, fire doesn't fall on an empty altar. So God is speaking to you. God is ministering to you. If God is challenging you tonight, come. Let's allow Him to search us, to know us, to refine us, to purify us, to point out whatever He needs to point out. God, search the areas where we've relied on ourselves rather than you. Show us the areas, God, of compromise in our own hearts and souls. Show us our blind spots, God. Purify us so that we are not destroyed by the blessing of God. Search us so that we're not destroyed when revival comes. God, do a deep work in our hearts, God, tonight. We want the real thing. We don't want hype. We don't want excitement. We want to be pure before your eyes. We want to be holy in your eyes. Bring us back to the one thing, the only thing. Thank you, Lord. listening to Pursuit Cast. For more information on the ministry of Pursuit NYC, please visit us on the web at www.pursuitnyc.org. Revival or bust.